When I was 30 years old, I climbed the west buttress of Denali with a good girlfriend of mine, Jannie. It's not a story that I've told very often. It's actually hard to find an audience. If I tell a climber, they are completely unimpressed with my route and already know anything that I would have to offer. It is Alaska, after all. Half of this audience has climbed the west buttress. Your grandma climbed it last year, and she has two new hips. If I tell a non-climber, like when I lived in Michigan and would share it there, uh, they would say, wow, did you summit? Because they had heard about climbing mountains. And I, I couldn't lie, I didn't summit, and they would stop listening. What they couldn't understand is that by the time I got close to the summit, I didn't care at all about standing on top. It was a dream for Janie and I to climb Denali. Not the kind of dream that little girls have, like owning a pony or marrying Sean Cassidy. <laughs> More like a dream that begins on a desert rock climbing trip when two friends drink too much beer and are sitting in their lawn chairs at the tailgate of their truck. And one of them says, we should climb Denali. And the other one says, hell yeah. <laughs> now, don't tell Janie because she thinks that we did this climb to be strong and independent women, and that is true. But there was some other incentive for me as well. Uh, and, you know, I hate when women, especially young women, copy their boyfriend's sports. So I'm very embarrassed to tell you that at the time we planned this climb, I did have a boyfriend who was a climber. And so, while I wanted to be a strong and independent woman, I was very motivated for him to think I was a badass. <laughs> Mike had spent a lot of time on Denali. And in fact, the year before my climb, he spent a month as a volunteer climbing ranger. Janie and I could not get our act together in time to be there at the same time Mike was up there. He missed me a lot that month. He wrote letters every few days, real letters, paper, pencil on paper, put in envelopes, and sent down with climbers who would mail them from Talkeetna. His words were beautiful, describing the landscape, the wind, the snow. In no way did his words prepare me for how small and afraid I felt that first day heading out up the Cahiltna Glacier. Just leaving camp was epic. <clears throat> we had to melt snow, drink, cook, eat, break camp, pack. It would take at least four hours. We were carrying 21 days of food and fuel, all the camping gear. Our climbing gear included harness and rope, pulleys, carabiners, ice axes, pickets, ice screws, ropes, and a million other things. Janie and I together weigh 260 pounds. <clears throat> we redefined expedition-style climbing. We couldn't have gone any slower or heavier. <laughs> I have no idea what our gear weighed. 
we were very low tech. We didn't have scales before we left. We didn't have an altimeter. We didn't use a GPS. Our watches broke on the first day. I can tell you that our packs were too heavy to pick up. We had this entire choreography to leave camp. We would stretch out the rope and the sleds and get them all at attention, and then we'd take our packed packs, and they would be sitting there on their rumps, waiting. And then Jannie would go over to her pack, and she would sit on the ground, and she would buckle the waist belt, and then she'd do the sternum strap. And I would get behind her, and I would push the pack over so that Jannie would be on all fours, which is a power position <laughs> rather than a turtle position. And once she was on all fours, I would stand behind her and I would hoist the pack up as she would push her ice axe into the snow. Once she was standing, she would turn and face me. I would do the same all the way to the point where I was on all, all fours with my pack kind of pushing my head into the snow. Only my little friend Jannie couldn't pick up my pack from behind because she was wearing her pack at that point. So she would walk around and stand in the front of me and I would grab onto her harness and I would pull myself up. <laughs> and that was day one. <laughs> I imagined that my boyfriend Mike had a very different experience on his patrol. He was one of six men. The Park Service left caches of food and fuel along their route and they traveled with they traveled with two rope teams of three men on each team. I don't think he was concerned at all about the crevasses. He wrote me about these crevasses as big as school buses. I worried about it constantly on our climb and how to keep Janny and I out of those crevasses. <clears throat> we inched our way up the mountain. It took two weeks to get to 14,000 feet. We arrived in the middle of the night. It was so cold, it hurt to breathe. It was a beautiful solstice sky. Set up camp, Janny went to sleep, and I walked over to the Park Service shack. I stood at the shack and imagined a year before how my care package to Mike probably sat on this ledge in that shack, waiting for him to come down from the high camp. He had asked me, he begged me to send a care package, and I finally got around to it. I chose the most obnoxious envelope I could find at the post office. It was pink with bright red hearts, and I just loved the idea of him and his stinky macho climbing partners walking in there and getting this girly package. But I knew he would be delighted, and I, sh I shoved it full of a big fat love letter and lots of brownies, because what else does a climber ever want? <clears throat> So Camp 14, 14,000 feet, is an odd place, a little bit like Club Med if there's no wind. And um, Janny and I took advantage of that and enjoyed a rest day. Day 15 and 16, we ferried up all that gear up the fixed line. And on the morning of day 17, we exited, crawled out of our ice cave camp and headed up the ridge, the high ridge from the, from the top of the fixed line. It was a perfect day. There was no wind. It was sunny. There was loads of the styrofoam snow that made for perfect cramponing. It was the total opposite of the weather that Mike experienced a year before, according to the Park Service reports on that ridge. We made our way up the climb. And when we approached Washburn's Thumb, I tugged on the rope so Janny would stop. I knew the exact spot. The day after Mike fell, the Park Service ranger called me and we went over the maps. 
He had been coming down from the high camp on the last day of his one-month patrol and heard of a climber falling off the ridge. Mike made his way down the ridge and fell himself on blue ice and was not able to self-arrest. And he fell about 1,500 feet to the Peters Glacier and his body was never found. I stood on that ridge. I was so happy to be there. I felt so big and so strong at that moment. And I thought about Mike and I thought about the world without him. And I talked to him. And then I dug into the pocket of my bibs and I pulled out a little Guatemalan change purse that I'd carried. And inside of it was a little charm, an angel. It was a guardian angel that Mike and I had exchanged over the years. And I took the angel and I threw it as far as I could out onto the Peters Glacier. And then I couldn't think of anything else to say or do or think. And so I turned and I headed back to my pack and I sat on the snow and I put the pack on my shoulders and I buckled the waist belt and I buckled the stern and belt and I wrestled it over until I was on all fours. And then I dug the ice axe in as hard as I could into that perfect snow and I heaved on it and stood. And then I nodded and I smiled at Janny. And she started up the ridge and our rope slithered between us. And we continued up to the high camp at 17,200 feet.